looks cool today. Well, thanks. I had my hair cut yesterday. Did you? I got a haircut appointment. They're like fucking gold dust, Helen. And do you want to know how I got my haircut? How I managed to get an appointment? Oh, do I want to know? What do you know? <laughs> I sucked a dick. <laughs> It's the new normal, babe. Suck a dick to get a trim. (laughs) It's only a matter of time until that method of payment found its way through the entirety of our society. I would never normally say something like that because I feel like weird about joking about stuff like that. I don't know why. Because it's real. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was how I did well, it. Well, good dick sucking. It looks great. <laughs> Thanks, Belle. Can I can I clarify how I got my hair cut? Yes. <laughs> no, or should we leave it? Should we leave the mystery in the ether? No, no let's leave it. Everyone will think I'm like badass and also a big... Sassy little ho. <laughs> That's what they say about me. I do want to know, though. I'm friends with my hairdresser on Instagram. Can you say you're friends with them on, on social media? I'm connected. We follow each other. Oh, a mutual. A mutual. Well, I, I think, well, who knows? That's anyway. edging towards friendship. I, I think say. so. <laughs> as soon as they released, like, you can now start having your hair cut, I went online and tried to book. And then, as usual, because I can't make just a choice often about things, I faffed for ages about when would be the right time. He went from having appointments this week to not having anything till like the end of May within a week within like two days all the appointments are gone so I basically just messaged him directly being like please you need to help me I can't do you know who I am (laughs) I said I've got a mullet growing and it's not a fun one please help me so bless him yeah this is an mullet emergency I really hate having my hair cut but he is a very nice man so why do you hate having your hair cut it's a really good question helen i think it started <laughs> when i was much younger <laughs> i don't know why i hate having my hair cut i just find it really stressful do you get under pressure yeah you know I, what you want yep i get under pressure i also look at i used to take pictures in of people and be like i really like their hair and then you realize your hair style quality like the thickness does not match so i want this really like french girl cutesy bob thing that i wanted for a while and then my i've got big thick jewish curls like massive thick my people have cultivated this hair for so long it's gonna be like this way i can't have like it's made a, that way for a reason it's made <laughs> for a reason and i've got my hair will not be like wispy alexa chung cutesy french girl bob mine's like a little jewish boy at his bum mitzvah and I've just decided to accept that that's the curls that's the way it wants to go now I found a style and I really love it and I'm really happy with it but it's taken a really long time to get to a stage where I'm like I'm not going to achieve the ingenue oh my hair's like wispy and it's like no it's here we're ready we've been through a lot (laughs) strong hair good strong strong hair hair. I, I don't know if you do the same thing but I get into a state of visual confusion when I ask when I take a photo and I used to do that too but I do the same thing with hair dye packets where I can't really tell the difference whether I like the hair or whether I want to look like the model Mm -hmm. so sometimes I have taken I've taken a picture of someone who I desperately want to look like they cut my hair I realize I still look like me (laughs) I still (laughs) have my face (laughs) a weird haircut I'm still getting used to that also I set up a slideshow I set up 
photos there's like 10 or 15 photos of stars that I like and then I also have the subcategory of please don't let my hair look like this this is what I don't want so I'll be like I want this but I don't want this I'm surprised that I've held on to a hairdresser for this long and how patient he is I find it really stressful and it's also like knowing that my hair isn't just going to look great the day I get it cut because they won't dry it the way you want it they always want to give me a big blowout yeah big poofy blowout which is like not how I wear my hair ever so it always looks like I'm jazzed up to go on a big Liverpool night out yeah and then I have to wait I have to go home and (laughs) rinse it and wait for it to fall into its normal unkempt you know that's my my look that's what what you currently get I've been dyeing my hair for a really long time bleaching it probably for the last five years I I did try it as a teenager and it went really badly wrong I I wanted to look like Gwen Stefani like I wanted to have that like white blonde platinum blonde I just wanted to be Gwen Stefani to be honest I didn't know what I was doing and I was in my friend's bedroom and with like two of my friends and we were just like whacking bleach on my head and then we didn't put any toner I didn't put like I didn't know what I was doing just pure bleach and then I was like here I am what like toilet bleach no, hair bleach, but like you're supposed to, you usually Come on. to bleach it and then you put like either a toner or like a hair dye on top and it's a couple of days, it's like a two or three day process. You can do it in less, but this is where you have to let go of the fear that all your hair's going to fall out and just do it. Every now and then I'll tell myself like, if my hair falls out, I'll be bald for a while and it'll be fine. Because uh, otherwise <laughs> I wouldn't do it. It hasn't happened yet, touch wood. But yeah, no, that time I, uh, I, I just put bleach on my hair and I thought, well, it's okay. It was kind of like light, you know, light-ish. And then it was a really sunny day and I went out for the day and steadily as the sun shone down on my freshly bleached hair, it just turned brighter and brighter yellow. Until by the end of the day, it was like orange. Yeah, so um, I steered clear of, obviously, I stuck with um, darker (laughs) colours for a long time. So, Helen. Yeah. I tell you who's got lovely hair. Who's got lovely hair? Ash Sarka. (laughs) She does. (laughs) Good link, Lauren. That's good. We are very, very excited about our guest today, though, aren't we? We are. Uh, She's awesome. We got to interview Ash Sarka. Ash Sarka is a British journalist and a political activist. She's also a senior editor at Navara Media, which is an independent media organisation addressing the issues that are set to define the 21st century, from a crisis of capitalism to racism and climate change. She also lectures in political theory at the Sandberg Institute. So when we were discussing our wish list of guests for series two... I remember suggesting her to you and just being like, imagine we could get Ash Sarka to come and chat to us about rage. I feel like her take on rage and anger will be a conversation that we've not really had with anybody else yet. And boy, did she deliver. The things that we talked about really sat with me and especially because her rage and her her anger and her frustrations, in my opinion, have been so public. Yeah, and she's so grounded in who she is and we need people like that and voices like that, especially in journalism and especially in political commentary. You know, she's a really, really great voice in the world right now and we need it. It was great to get to chat to her. Also, it's worth mentioning that there's a moment where we're talking and we start laughing, which is very difficult for a podcast to know what we're actually talking about because it's a visual gag. Just imagine we're all sitting there chatting and out of the corner of Helen's video, (laughs) her dog just appears and seems to be sitting dead on almost like she's looking at camera very patiently waiting to make her point my dog is media trained (laughs) 
<laughs> really she is. She knows to make eye contact with the camera. <laughs> and she's very patient. She waited for her turn. <laughs> we'll put a little clip on our social media on our Instagram so that you can see that moment and yeah, you can but share it's good the to, joy. Uh, it's good to prepare you for that because it's quite a topic change. I think Ash has just said something very poignant and, and profound and beautiful and then suddenly we all we start laughing. We just all start laughing. So here's Ash. <laughs> Well, I've been really excited to just talk about anger. I've been thinking about (laughs) anger a lot recently. I've got like my book of imagined slights to bring out. And I'll be (laughs) chapter one. The girl who said I had a squinty eye at the pub. Here we go. (laughs) Set the scene. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm I'm all right. I've been feeling actually quite scatty, which for me is a super disconcerting feeling because I love feeling like on top of it and I know what I have to do. And I've just been feeling like a little bit under the weather. My brain's ability to retain information has just completely collapsed. Now I'm just like, but I am a little rowing boat on a chaotic ocean of my own making. <laughs> so that's how I've been like last couple of days. And I think it's amplified through lockdown because yeah. you're in a claustrophobic space with nothing but yourself. And you're like, oh, God, that shit company, isn't it? And, and one of the things which I think I realized was super integral to like how... I dealt with feelings of being like perhaps overwhelmed or sort of scatty or confused before was like just putting myself physically in a different space even to just to be like I want that chicken and cheese wrap that boss man in Finsbury Park does so I'm just going to like take myself there and that's where I'm going to do my thinking about my day like that was a really integral part of it was just sort of like mixing up the physical spaces that I was in whereas now I'm just like ah yes these same four walls great (laughs) for even longer yeah Yeah. well when we just started you said that you've been thinking about (laughs) your age um is this something that sits with you quite regularly I mean I don't think of myself as an angry person I don't think of myself as an enraged person but I think one of the things that I've done throughout my life and particularly in the last few years is channeled things which make me feel really really angry through humor and often very self-deprecating humor and I think it's because I feel on some level there isn't the space for me to be allowed to be angry and it comes I think with the platform and wanting to use my platform responsibly and not in an enraged way which could be really harmful for somebody else because if you've got like over a quarter of a million followers and I turn them on to somebody that could be really fucking awful so I try not to be impulsive with that and then on the other hand there's a thing of like well you're brown so you're going to be read as angry no matter what you do and then when you are angry it's like you've murdered a nun or something like that's how people relate to you like like if you if you express your anger so I'm actually like an incredibly control freak kind of person when it comes to like managing anger and rage and trying to present it in ways which are easily consumable for other people. It kind of occurs to me about this sense of our safety to be angry or not. And obviously that's also dependent on so so many factors, race, gender, all kinds of things about how how we're variously perceived and and responded to. And and in that regard, the the thing that you're saying about humour creating a sort of a buffer, do you feel like it's unsafe in general? Is there an ability to create a sense of safety around a place or a feeling that feels unsafe? I mean, I I don't think safety is necessarily the word I'd use because 
safety I tend to think of in a very literal way and that is because of all the stuff from the far right having to be really careful about not being too open about where I live or where I am at any given time so for me I think of safety in this incredibly literal way for me it's more like when you are around white people white people are like skittish ponies a lot of the time like you can always spook them or you know they're kind of like milk and one touch from you can like curdle them like you don't know what they're gonna do like they're either gonna like go off running or kick you in the face and so you kind of start like managing yourself to like not make too many sudden movements um, or spook them too much because things can erupt in a really volatile way and in terms of like you know my friends even my own family you know my stepdad and two of my brothers are white when you want to develop a really close relationship with white people, you kind of have to cross that bridge of race and who's perceived as a threat together. There's always a point where you've got to do it. And with people who you love very much, like be it my boyfriend or my best friend or my stepdad, um, who are not all the same person, just to... We'll talk about that. But, uh... <laughs> Definitely not all the same person. Um, <laughs> You're taking a risk in terms of like whether or not that closeness will survive having to like cross that bridge together. Mm. And that's definitely a reason why you've got to manage your anger because you don't want to, you don't want to spook the pony. I'm so interested by what you say about easily consumable. How do you manage that in a way? What are your guidelines for an easier consumable anger? So humor, right? If you can make someone laugh about the thing that's making you angry, it's a reassurance that you haven't alienated them, right? Mm. So laughter is something which like you do together and it's kind of involuntary and it kind of breaks down that guardedness, which can result in distance. Um, Another thing is being like hyper precise in what you say and how you say it. There have just been so many occasions where in a racialized context, the responses that you get are this kind of weird hybrid of distress and hostility. Like that's what you're getting from the other person. Like they're genuinely distressed by your presence and also very hostile to it. And Mm. if you put a foot wrong or you say something impulsively no matter how you know mild it is really you can get these explosive reactions back so it does make you hyper aware of what you say and how you say it and when you say it because when Mm. you don't it's yeah. One of the reasons why we were drawn to you is because on a personal level for me, even though I don't podcast, the irony that I find myself very inarticulate, you know, when I get very angry is always there that when we've watched you in interviews, for example, I think that like you say about being hyper precise and super articulate in your in your responses it has always been something that I've admired you and I've admired other people that are able to do that because it renders me completely inarticulate of being able to respond in that way would you say that's always been the way you've responded one of the things that is easily mistaken is that in those like really adversarial uh, media context is that I must be angry but a lot of the time I'm kind of up for a scrap So I kind of feel almost like enlivened by it. And I think it comes from having gone to an all-girls school where parring is an art form. And so you've just always got to have one back. And that's how the social context functions. It's like an economy of pars. And then on top of that, I've always loved rap. I've always loved grime. I've always loved clashing. And I've just been fascinated by that culture. So I've always been into the way in which these hyper-adversarial settings can bring out the most mischievous and dynamic and exciting aspects of somebody's character 
So I think that that's where it comes from. It's not necessarily like, oh, I'm really angry and I found a way to articulate being angry. It's like, nah, kind of, I kind of like being in the ring. And then mm. the thing which I did have to learn is when I'm genuinely angry in those contexts. Like I remember once a guy from UKIP accused me of playing the race card on TV. And I just felt like, you fucking prick. You know what you've done. You've made it like, I can't escape my own visual brownness in this televised setting. And I did trip over my words. And I don't think that I got him back because I was trying so hard not to call him a cunt, which in some ways would have been the most accurate, truthful and authentic thing to say. But because of the constraints of the setting, that's the one thing that I couldn't say because of, you know, stupid Ofcom. So I think that there is a difference between feeling like you are brought to life in an adversarial context and then having to deal with moments of genuine anger. It's hard for someone to make me genuinely, genuinely angry in a TV context. I've now done it so much that I know I'm a tap dancing poodle. I know my other panelist is a tap dancing poodle. Like we're all here just to pass the time. If you're going in for a discussion or a debate, you're you're there for that reason and you're ready for the scrap. For instance, a long time ago during the Trump protests, you had the interview with Piers Morgan when he was being a total cunt. Those people where they're either shifting the goalposts or they're resetting the parameters of the discussion around you, they're not really allowing the debate that you're there to have. In that particular instance, you call Piers Morgan an idiot. And it felt to me like absolutely the best response. In those instances, how do you manage those sort of arguments and separate them from the genuine debates that you're there to have as a journalist? I mean, there's no such thing as a genuine debate. If you're on the left and you're a person of colour and you're a woman, you're not being brought in as somebody who is on equal footing. You're a totem of a wing of politics, which they would rather did not exist. And so you've got to go in with that mindset every single time. And sometimes you're more prepared for it and sometimes you're less prepared for it. Sometimes you know what the attack line is going to be and sometimes you don't. But you never go in thinking these are people who genuinely want to give me a fair hearing and genuinely want to hear my ideas. Sometimes they are, right? And you can be pleasantly surprised when that happens. Um, There are some people who have been surprisingly fair interlocutors and I've gone, wow, I didn't expect that. But the next time I go in with them, I'm still going to go in expecting that someone wants to take my head off because that's what politics is. It's not a debating society. It's a gunfight. And it always has been. And as things have become more polarized, as you've kind of seen this relationship between big platform figures, whether they're journalists or politicians appealing to an increasingly angry and active grassroots and trying to almost get them involved by making them angry. So I think that there is no distinguishing, like you've got to go in always, like someone's going to try and take my head off. And then there are various strategies you can employ. With the Piers Morgan thing, I thought I'd really fucked up that interview. I came out and I was like, oh my God, I've let down the movement. I've really messed up. I started yelling about communism, called him an idiot. (laughs) And then it turned out that that was a moment of authenticity which really connected with people. And I didn't expect that to happen at all, at all. Like that was not a strategy. But what that showed me is that people warm to those moments where it breaks through the constraints of the talk show setting. They really like that. Another thing you can do is just you know, try and be like 
Muhammad Ali, like light on your feet, not take anything too seriously. So everyone else comes across like a lumbering heavyweight and you're like, float Mm -hmm. like a butterfly, baby. Like, you know, that's another strategy that you can employ. Another thing that you can do is when everyone's being very chummy and ha ha ha, you could be like, you know that the rest of the country hates you for a good reason. And I do too. I've got nothing but disdain for you and what you stand for. Again, (laughs) it's another strategy. And all these times you might be trying to articulate the same set of points, but you're appealing to a different kind of emotional affect and you're not always in control of which one you choose sometimes like it chooses you and you're put in the situation yeah. but I think it's worth thinking of it as a set of strategies rather than how do I authentically be who I am in every single setting because if you're authentically who you are in all of those settings you will go insane yeah being light on your feet is such a heartening way to see it being approached when that feels like there's so much heaviness and so much um, responsibility and can be so much heaviness and responsibility put on you in that moment. And it reminded me of the interview that you did about singing the national anthem and you basically came on to be like, I think it's a shit policy, but can we talk about the fact that schools need more support and there's no funding? And I think having that adeptness and that lightness to use your platform in a way that's what was lovely to see was that you were fighting almost against that reason for being there. You were like, I'm not here to debate the national anthem because you've got me on here because of who I am. And actually, I'm here to actually push this agenda. It was really fascinating to see the responses in the room. They were getting riled up that you wouldn't play the game with them. I mean, they also then like got riled up when I just didn't take the national anthem that seriously. I was like, you can say it if you want. It doesn't, it doesn't even slap like that. But like, fine. The culture wars as a general thing, is just a load of disingenuous bullshit. It's about Mm. getting two sets of people who occupy photo-negative positions of one another and trying to get the public to buy into this being somehow real and dangerous and motivating. And so one of those photo-negatives is obviously Muslim, communist, woman. And then the other was, you know, Brexity Tory MP but then when one of them is like you do you man like I don't care like sing national anthem replace it with wearing my Rolex I don't care um (laughs) it means that you've undermined not just the particular discussion about national anthem good or bad but the whole premise of a culture wars framing of something and that's why they got so mad and kept trying to like draw me in draw me in draw me in because it is fatally undermining what is a sort of political strategy at the moment, getting everyone riled up by these kinds of like totemic cultural issues, which have got nothing to do with the economic base. And I think that one of the things that is really important when you go into some of those settings is that you treat the issue with the seriousness that it deserves. And if it doesn't deserve any seriousness, don't act like it does. Don't dignify it. Yeah, of course, you're so right about this tactic of creating these very polar opposite viewpoints that we must choose which camp we're in. And, you know, you can get into these places where if I believe X, Y and Z, then I must also believe this, that and the other. And I must also be very angry about this issue because everybody on my side of things is. And, you know, you get all these kind of prescribed ways and responses that they're obviously bringing you into voice things they already know what they want you to say and when you don't it adds a complexity because there are so many varying degrees of shade within all of these issues that they just want to put in like this camp versus that camp and people aren't like that there's a range I mean there's also the logistics of it which is you have the pre-interview where a producer rings you up and sort of minds you for all your opinions and often that's longer 
than the actual segment itself. And what the producer's job is to do in that context is go, does this person that I'm casting for this role, are they going to fulfill it? Are they going to read their lines? Are they going to go through the script? And sometimes the producer will be quite open to hearing something new. And they'll go, actually, that's an interesting point of view. And ultimately, we're happy to broadcast that as part of that discussion. But a lot of the time, when you say something unexpected in that pre-interview, they'll go, we're going for something else. That pre-interview is a way of checking that you're going to say the words that they want you to say. And what was interesting about the national anthem one is that in the pre-interview, I was just saying all the stuff of don't care. And the producer was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, but then like wrote up in the notes that was like, yeah, no, she thinks the national anthem's really dangerous. <laughs> so I, like there was some guy. There was like a secret ally, you know, it was like the resistance, like yeah, they're putting was, you through to fuck them up. There was some kind of like filter in the pipeline, like, I don't know. Um, but that was one of the elements of the interview, which I remember finding quite funny, which is on the auto cue that Susanna and Piers were reading off of. It said that I'd said all this stuff in the pre-interview, which I hadn't. <laughs> Wow, how interesting I love that It it literally started with you going I never said that And they were like "Uh, It's all we've got It's all we've got Keep going, keep going It was so gorgeous It was just this It's such a cheeky Sort of gorgeous thing Because other people May feel the pressure To sit into that And say Okay, like I'll play that role But what really helps about Good Morning Britain is that they make you get up so early. You have to get up at like five, you're in hair and makeup at like 5.36. You haven't had those bits of your brain which are capable of like projecting social niceties. So maybe if it was later in the day, I'd be like, just take that. But at six in the morning, I'm like, that's not right. (laughs) Because I just don't have the filter yet. I think that's when any sort of political debate needs to happen at sort of four in the morning when the, <laughs> we call it the lizard brain, where it's like your filters are, are sort of off between your your brain and your mouth have gone. So that has yeah. completely disappeared. So you actually just say what you genuinely really think as opposed to sort of going, oh, yeah, I'll follow the autocue. But that's what you do. That's one of the things that I personally really love about you, because I think there's various times when you've done that and when you do that quite regularly. And I think it's like this trap that people are so often pulled into of having to play the game or feeling that if they don't play the game, that they won't be heard at all or won't be won't be contributing to the discussion at all or, you know, that they have to act within certain parameters. And I just... Um, I think it's a different approach to that problem. That's like really important to remember in all of these spaces is that all the people there are like really quite weird. Like they're just really weird, socially bizarre people and they all know each other and it's all very chummy. And when you're not part of those social circles, like fucking going to dinner with these people like (laughs) rather gouge out my own eyes but they've occupied this kind of you know rarefied social bubble and because all the emperors in the room are naked you are made to feel like the weird one because you're wearing clothes like that's the kind of dynamic and as long as you sort of maintain that kind of grip on an outside reality of like hang on you're all a bunch of hothouse flowers like you exist within this very closed off very controlled very narrow social sphere then you can just sort of act on your disdain when you feel it and I'll I'll give you an example of just like how much weird behavior is tolerated within some of these spaces I was doing politics live once and it was me a Lib Dem a Tory MP and 
one of Blair's former speechwriters. And there was a discussion about, is the hard left uniquely nasty? And obviously, as like the representative of the hard left, everyone's like going for me. They're like, the hard left are intolerant, they're screaming at each other all the time. And I sort of made my point about like, look, politics is a contact sport. Hostility and antagonism is everywhere. It's just interesting to see where that gets applied. No one really bought that as an explanation. That's fine. Meanwhile, Blair's former speechwriter and the Tory MP are like riling each other up all show. There's just like some real backbiting and bad blood, but nothing crazy, nothing that you wouldn't expect. The show ends and the cameras stop rolling. And then Blair's former speechwriter goes buck wild. I'm talking screaming, shouting, swearing, slamming his hand on the desk, really like balls to the wall, angry. And the Tory MP is just sort of like enjoying the fact that he'd gotten this reaction. And I was sort of looking around, waiting for like someone else to be like, this is really unacceptable. Like you're in a professional setting, sort your shit out, go home and punch your wall on your own time. This isn't the place. Nobody said that. Instead, the person who was presenting was, I'm not going to mention the speechwriter's name, um, was poor speechwriter. I think Tory MP rather riled him up there, like literally like a sort of indulgent headmistress. And I was sitting there, I was like, hang on, all you man were saying that the hard left are like uniquely nasty and insane. What the fuck is going on here? But it's because like they were all part of that very Westminster bubble kind of world that there was latitude given there. There was space and room given there. Whereas had I behaved even a fraction of that, you know, if I'd sworn at anybody, it would be out, you know, would never work in those kind of contexts again you know it'd be seen as the hard left mob unruly violent and all the rest of it but that for me it was just such a stark example of like all you people are insane the allowances that are given anyway with any of that group is to sort of just to be able to manage those egos in the room you would never have been allowed that would never have been acceptable for you to have done that because also you'd be proving the points that they've Mm -hmm. been trying to do the whole time whereas often people are scared of their own anger and their own rage but also it's managing the other egos and the other rage in the room it's just fascinating that they were basically proving the point as soon as the cameras went off that it's just a load of bullshit (laughs) yeah but it also shows you exactly how it's skewed right that like if they tell you you are something whether you are it or not then you can't even come close to anything that might look like the thing they're telling you you are it makes me think of like all this stuff to do with Boris Johnson at the moment everyone's like oh he's trying his best so many allowances that especially super privileged white men are treated like children like like delicate toddlers whereas everybody else has to really put a lot of work and energy into as you said earlier controlling your output and controlling your emotional states I mean I don't I think that I think that sometimes though the kind of framework of identity politics and privilege theory doesn't always explain all of it so you know Jeremy Corbyn is a privately educated old white man if he was prime minister they'd have cooed him after the first 10,000 died right it would be you know the political editor of the BBC has been replaced with a general I mean like that it would have been very different and it's about in whose interests are you seen to be operating so for instance Mm. with the attack on the capital one of the things that I saw a lot from people was you know this is white privilege the fact that these right-wing protesters were able to storm 
capital there weren't mass shootings you know there was one person who was shot dead it was policed in such a different way from the black lives matter protests where mm. the national guard were that that's white privilege and i was like no it's it's white nationalism this is the difference you know when there were anti-war protesters in 1970 at kent state university in ohio those were white kids who were shot dead by the national guard same thing happened in jacksonville i think two days later. And that's because they were seen to be acting in a way which was hostile to establishment interests. If these crazy town banana pants QAnon types are able to get so close to doing real harm to elected representatives and they have not had an iota of the policing that Black Lives Matter experienced, but that also in previous generations white anti-war leftist protesters experienced, well then you have to go Whose interest is this? Is this just the same old white privilege, which means that, you know, you guys would get served at brunch before me? Or is this there's some kind of confluence of interest between white nationalism and policing and the political decisions being made about whether or not to send out the National Guard and so on and so forth? So that's where I'm a bit wary of some of the framings around privilege and whiteness in particular, like not all white people experience their white privilege in the same way. It depends on the context that they're in. It makes it a more palatable experience. It's there for us to understand the difference as opposed to actually looking at the nuances. We don't understand that it's nuanced. When you're you're up there, for example, representing hard left and we've got somebody there from the hard right, we're forced to pick a side. And most people are somewhere in between where it's a lack of education, lack of understanding, Um, lack of knowledge of your own privilege. I think there's so much of that balance that we need the binary. We we don't need the binary. The binary is there because we feel we need it to make that decision between this is how I understand it. They were a bunch of white privileged people Mm. who had never experienced any oppression and that's why they were allowed to do what they did. And there's no fine line between it. I think think it's also just like, you know, I think there's good identity politics and there's bad identity politics. There's stuff which has been really helpful for getting people to understand one another. So this is where lived experience is useful because you start thinking, well, hang on, this person has had a completely different experience of the world to me. And there are structural reasons for that. Like That's really, really great. But then there's the lived experience, which is you are brown. Therefore, you are the font of all wisdom to do with anything to do with racism whatsoever. And and that's it. You know, there's no more politics. There's no more evidence. There's nothing else I need. Um, You know, there's the identity politics, which read that fucking awful article by by a white woman actually saying Bernie Sanders wearing mittens was um, oh, yeah. of white privilege oh, and that's yeah. just, give me fucking strength like it's enough to turn me into Jordan Peterson I'm like identity politics is a cancer but um you know there's really bad stuff which is just trying to explain everything you see through this really wonky lens and I think that it's kind of up to people regardless of whether you identify yourself as being on the left or a progressive or a mm-hmm. liberal to go how do we challenge the really stupid stuff and keep the really good stuff yeah like where we're drawing these lines are kind of more to do with is it anti-establishment or pro-establishment in a sense mm-hmm. and that pro-establishment also includes pro-white pro-cis males mm-hmm. pro-straight like um pro-nationalist whatever like these things are part of the establishment and part of the accepted order it's like where do you position yourself I suppose in terms of who benefits and who's in charge and whose narrative do we accept 
And I was um, reading this really, really wonderful book called Black Against Empire, and it's a history of the Black Panther Party. And there are chapters dedicated to where the Black Panthers were in a wider movement ecology, which included um, the Puerto Rican young lords who were initially a street gang, and then they turned themselves into a political outfit molded after the Black Panthers. Other Hispanic groups who were organizing to deal with structural racism and economic inequalities. There were the uh, Red Army, who were Chinese Americans who were dealing with both structural discrimination and also anti-imperialism. You then had the SDS, who were obviously the student anti-war movement, who were behind everything that exploded into being around the Vietnam War. And because of all these things going on, in Chicago, you had the Black Panthers set up what was called the Rainbow Coalition. So it was a group of self-organized you know, identity groups of the Black Panthers and Chinese Americans and Hispanics, but also poor white people. So because you had that really quite firm economic analysis of what was going on, it meant that you could extend beyond identity groups and start thinking about, well, how do we work together? One of the things that Huey Newton would say is that the Viet Cong and the Black Panthers are fighting the same enemy. Um, yeah. So it's also about yeah. a way of really clarifying like what was the power structure you were going after. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of with this iteration of identity politics, we don't quite have that yet. Yeah, we need that now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to bring it onto our game now because oh, I yeah. think we've opened the book and we're in. <laughs> And I want to get I want to get further into it. Let's play a game and dig a little deeper into where your rage sits. So what can't you just say? How do we describe the game? No, no, it's you just... that, it's better. <laughs> Fucking hell. I just think about everything. Uh, it's just a, like a quick fire thing. So we'll shout a number at you aggressively and then you shout, you shout your response <laughs> back however you feel it. And then we'll pressure you into the next one. And we'll yeah. just do, we'll do eight things as you think of them. And then uh, we'll take that as a jumping off point to go into some more stuff. Okay, are you ready, Ash? All right, got it. Thing number one. Private schools. Thing number two. Uh, Food poverty. Thing number three. People that wear their face masks around their chin rather than over their mouths and their nose. (laughs) Thing number four. Really shit, cynical identity politics. Thing number five. Oh, my God. Overpriced, gentrified ethnic food so like dal which is the food of the poor being priced at like eight pounds number six hypocrisy and number seven how expensive scented candles are (laughs) (laughs) and number eight liz truss yeah, yeah. Well I survived. You did it. <laughs> did it. Great. What a great balance. How are you feeling now? Has everything been? Uh, have you rummaged around? A lot of stuff. I think I need either. to breathe into a paper bag for a bit. If that's okay. <laughs> Is that your go-to yeah. tip? This is a very balance. I mean, even with the scented candles, there's a good balance. You're very on brand, Ash, I feel, for a lot of your range. Um, one thing I think I'd be interested to, to talk about a little bit more is when would you say anger is helpful for you? And when is anger harmful? Oh, you know what? I had like a properly good example of this over the summer because um, I went on holiday to Cornwall with my partner who's white and two of our friends uh, who are also white. And as soon as we got there, someone like literally yelled out a car, packy, go home. 
And it was one of those things where I was seeing how the white people around me were trying to work out how to react. And it was coming from like a place of real care and real love, but also just didn't quite have the like racial literacy of what do I do in this situation? And I was angry, not at them as individuals, but I was just sort of angry and expressing my anger about being in the place. I was just like, fuck Cornwall, fuck Cornish pasties, fuck everybody here. I want to go to London where there's tube trains. The racism is institutional, which means it's not coming at me from out of a car. Fuck this. And I think at that point, the white people around me found my anger quite hard to deal with. And it was for different reasons. Like one was, you know, one of the friends, it was like her family home. And I think she kind of felt like responsible for it happening, mm-hmm. but didn't know how to articulate that. I think for my partner, because he comes from a small town up north, he was a bit like, oh shit, what if this happens when she comes up to see my parents next time? And then will she hate that place too? And then like for the rest of that week, I kind of felt like I was sitting on this bitter boiling pot and nobody else was and the more I was in this place which was like so tween those t-shirts and those bunting I was like I hate it even more like I hate this I hate this twee fucking place like which which conceals such like an ugly dark heart because it wasn't just that instance there was just constant looks and like hyper visibility and so I rang up my mum and I was just like I feel so angry and I feel I'm spoiling everyone else's time by being so angry and hating this place and she was like no hold on to that anger because if you don't hold on to that anger what are you left with humiliation that anger is the thing that's reminding you this isn't your fault that you're not dirty you're not wrong that you're not you're not shit in the milk like you're not this awful thing in this otherwise pure you know white setting and that for me was like a really important reminder of like actually you need the anger the anger can sometimes be your spine when you don't feel you've got anything else holding you up. That is such a wonderful and fascinating link to find between anger and humiliation. She's just, a wise, wise lady. Yeah. Oh, can she come on and do next? <laughs> <laughs> if you send her a bottle of Pinot Grigio, she'll do most things. <laughs> you know, in terms of that thing of one of the things that we're coming to understand and why we why we love to talk about rage so much and like chat about it is that perhaps if we're all a little bit better at receiving rage and knowing how to handle one another's rage and being able to kind of hold space for it, that it is a really helpful and useful emotion. But I think what you're saying about without that, when that's taken from you or when that's something that you don't let yourself feel, that what's left is humiliation. Can you talk, talk a bit more about how you find that link between those two places? Because I think that goes really deep. Yeah, I mean, so the experience of racism is humiliating. And I'm talking about in this like very visceral bodily sense. And I have to read this stuff every single day. Like every single day in my life, I have to read through abuse. I look at pictures that people Photoshop to include beards and mustaches, people speculating whether or not I've had FGM, people speculating what color my genitals are. I mean, like, it feels like cockroaches crawling over your body. And it has a very warping effect. You perceive yourself as dirt, as a kind of social contaminant, and you carry that with you. And you're constantly having to 
guard against and mitigate against it having a dysmorphic effect on how you see yourself. Like that is the experience of racism, whether that's from being trailed around in a shop or because you're being stopped and searched or because someone's shouting at you from a car. It's this idea that your human dignity doesn't have currency. It doesn't have recognition. That's the core of the feeling. And so how do you break out of that? How do you survive it? How do you not turn it in on yourself and let it completely destroy your sense of self? That's anger. You know, that's anger that helps lift you out of it. And anger can be a shared experience. It can be something that you experience with other people who are in the same position as you. And that's why when bad racist stuff happens, there's a reason why I call my mom and she assembles the war council of like my auntie and my grandma as well you know it's because she knows how it feels and it's an anger that's shared and me and my partner particularly through that that was an instance of having to like cross that bridge of race together like over the summer like he understands it a lot better now so even though he has never experienced racism he will never experience racism that anger is now something which can be shared together even if the anger is not experienced in the same way together and so that's the thing which kind of stops you from feeling like this little deformed bug which is kind of like crawling around the dining table ruining everybody's supper like that's the thing which can kind of remind you of your own humanity it's how we shift our perception of anger and how we often we don't allow it to be messy the anger is messy that if you respond by crying, for example, it's just another release of emotion mm. that it shouldn't be that you're weak or that it's minimizing where your anger feels. A lot of the time we're programmed into mm. thinking when we're angry, we need to be strong in our anger. Mm. But there's other sides. Do you find you hit the other sides of But you know what? Image? It's kind of the opposite for me because, and this is in particular where like the gender stuff comes into it, is that I'm perceived as being less of a woman than white women. I literally get called it or a man like on a daily basis. And that's not just from the far right. I then see how it plays out with different behaviors. So for instance, when like just a normal kind of conflict, like you ask any woman of color about how often like white women have just cried like around them and how often they get cast in the role of being the bully. It means that actually it's not like I have to make sure I'm perceived as really strong. You're scared that your strength is perceived as monstrous, as bullying. And that also, if you did want to cry, that that pain wouldn't be recognized. And that space is already claimed by the kind of fragility and femininity of in particular if there's like a white woman in this scenario so I don't even get to cry and have it be recognized as weakness that's not an option that's open to me in most of the social settings I find myself being able to cry and have that be recognized as an expression of anger and an expression of distress there's very very few people who I can do that with I can Mm. count on one hand and my mum gets two fingers So it's not like that at all for me. And I think if you spoke to like other black and brown women, they'll tell you something similar about the role of tears and who gets to cry. Yeah, definitely. In that regard, I guess as well, going back to what you're saying about Mm -hmm. your mum, but not only your mum, but your aunties and creating spaces where where the full breadth of your feelings can not only be experienced, but heard, seen, felt. You know, I, I, I saw somewhere that you'd said that your mum had actively encouraged she would bring 
home magazines with photos of beautiful, sexually empowered women of colour into your home for you to see. And um, I just thought that was a really beautiful thing when I read that you talked about that. And I, I think as well in terms of this thing about you know, the various ways, I suppose, that we learn to be women uh, and the differences obviously there and how white women learn to be women and how women of colour learn to be women and and all of the different uh, variants within those two subsets. <laughs> I wondered about what, what impact you felt that that had or what lessons that you take from growing up in an environment where there were a lot of women around and that sexual empowerment and the acceptance of your beauty and the acceptance of your feminine power were really encouraged. Like, I think that's a really Mm. beautiful thing as a counterance to shame, humiliation and, you know, what you were saying about dignity. So I think that like, one is that it comes from the political tradition that my mum was a part of, you know, so she was a part of anti-racist organising, you know, it was sort of, under the umbrella of political blackness at the time, which, you know, obviously has got very, very many flaws, but it meant that there was a lot of contact between different minority groups within a shared movement. And in particular, being a South Asian woman, we didn't have a black is beautiful moment. You know, colorism in lots of ways is a lot more accepted and embedded within South Asian communities. And my mum, having seen the empowering impact of the Black is Beautiful movement for people of African and Afro-Caribbean descent, she kind of wanted to replicate some of that feeling so that she can insulate me in particular, because I'm darker than my sister, but both of us, from the kind of really toxic and warping impacts of colorism within the South Asian community. And she did it from when we were like really, really little. So she got the books which had been put out by Bogle Louverture, I think, which had, you know, black children, you know, in the kind of role of the main character. And she would make uh, reading books with photos of me and my sister so that we could see ourselves in those places. And then as we got older, she would bring back fashion magazines if they had Naomi Campbell, Alec Weck, Tyra Banks, Iman, like those were the images that she wanted us to see and to look at and to feel empowered by. Um, Because also just there weren't South Asian models with dark skin. And the really funny one was when Naomi Campbell posed for Playboy and my mum bought the edition of Playboy. I remember she was wearing white. She had the white telephone, maybe. I think she was shot by David LaChapelle. And my mum brought back the Playboy and just covered up all the nipples with (laughs) faces. And it's also because my mom is a feminist and, uh, you know, everyone, every woman in my family has had at least one divorce. So she wasn't really into like kind of sexual shaming and, you know, misogynistic views on like how a proper woman should behave because already she and my aunt and my grandmother had deviated from that story, like within their own personal lives. And yeah, I think it just gave me the tools to survive in the world that I grew up into and so even when things were difficult I knew that I would never have any kind of dysmorphic sense of myself being reinforced at home around skin tone or or anything like that and it was also just like really funny the like various ways sometimes misguided like my mum would try and like you know introduce this thinking into the home were there instances where you were like this is fucking weird mum I I mean, I think in hindsight, the Playboy one, because I must have been like seven at the time. Like, mum's brought home a Playboy. (laughs) It's just so, there's something so inherently positive and 
hopeful and joyful in the direction that she would go towards. It's never denying that there's rage or anger there, but there's something so positive and so joyful almost in the way that she's bringing you and your sister up. My mum's got this amazing quality and I think she's always had that where she is so good at putting herself in the shoes of a child and the pain of children, the experience of children, the legitimacy of children's perceptions is just something Mm. that she's always been really good at tuning into. I'm not sure if that's because of the work that she does because she's a social worker or if it's expressed in the work that she does. Like, I don't really know which one came first. But I think because of that, she never felt a need to either like patronize or catastrophize. She really wanted to trust in the wisdom that children have and think about the ways in which you can develop that. And I think that that's just something which is really quite striking about her. It's like a quality that I don't necessarily see in lots of people and it's something that she's got in spades I think it's really interesting the thing about valuing the emotion of children because it's kind of like it's something that really I don't know it hits really deep with me I think um I struggle anyway to see you know when you see a child that's just like beside themselves upset and you Mm. could go ah this is because your balloon flew away you're Mm. you're being crazy but then at the same time you see you witness the emotion being almost like the core of the emotion like the same way that anybody feels it's like I get the impression that we as human beings feel an emotion like in its in its pure core sense Mm. and then everything else is kind of like how we have to navigate that that emotion depending Mm. on so many external factors I mean what what's interesting about one of the things that she said to me is that children internalize that from very very young so particularly children who are in abusive contexts one of the things which they learn very early on is that if they are to disclose if they are to reach out and say, hey, this thing is happening to me, they already have that very early awareness of that this could break up my family, Mm. but this could send somebody to prison. And they internalize that responsibility. And that's Mm. part of what leads to kind of walls of silence around abuse, particularly in families. And one of the things that my mom says like again and again and again is that it's not just about sending in the cavalry when there are instances of abuse because children feel responsible for that intrusion. It's about the rapport building and the trust that good things will happen if you make this disclosure. And that is slower work. But it's interesting that kids as young as three, four internalize that very adult sense of do I put my own pain above or below the pain of others? And the way in which abuse works is that it gets people to think you will cause more pain by trying to end your own than, you know, if you just let it continue. In terms of, sorry, <laughs> just like, she wants to join in. To listen. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you I, say. But... I too have very strong feelings about how we're socialising with our femininity. It's such I, as a pure white husky, would like to say something. I think I have something to add. Um, oh my god. My dog made me question a lot of racism, you know. So, like right off the track, this is ages ago. But I, I, did, I realized I felt really uncomfortable when I was going around when I had her, and so many people would compliment me on her being white, like a comp, like complimentary, like, 
oh wow she's white she's so white and I started to feel like it's like okay I know we're talking about dogs I'm not trying to like but are we talking about dogs dogs. like this really like it really started to get under my skin and and I felt so uncomfortable about that because I was just like because you're literally using white as a compliment like fine you could say she's beautiful such a lovely Aryan dog you have (laughs) because she's got the bluest eyes that reminds me of when I was a kid I was with um my mom and my mom's best friend and we were in Hyde Park because they'd got these like super duper cheap tickets somehow to see Pavarotti and my mom was like I know what my kids want to see you know my kids who really like listening to mystique like <laughs> Pavarotti my mom had this idea of like you are going to be cultured by hook or by fucking crook um so it was this like picnic thing and me and my sister were there and there was you know the entire Telegraph readership there also so we, we very much stood out of like this like Bengali family plus my mom's best friend who was this like giant Australian woman built like a prison guard so already we kind of like stood out as a group and so there was the picnic of the home counties you know a lot behind us and one of them decided I think after he was like you know pissed on like a couple of pims or so said to my mom like about me like your daughter has got the most lovely teeth and I said I was quite young, it was maybe on those seven or eight or something. I was like, that's the only white bit you could find of me. <laughs> like, I like the bit around the white of your eyes. I like around your eyes and I like your teeth. I was like, I didn't have that nice teeth. I was like, you know, my milk teeth were coming out, the ones were coming oh out all crooked. <laughs> Yeah, it's so bizarre that, like, what can I compliment? And that thing about when we're talking about something that we're like, we're not talking about racism, but we kind of, we are talking about racism. And like, that's, I think, so important to recognise, like, these so weird, like, these ways that people kind of bend this viewpoint that white is superior Mm. into everything. But I don't think it's, I, I genuinely think that, like, sometimes there's, a malevolence and an element of calculation about it I think sometimes and I've seen it happen again and again upon contact with melanin sometimes white people's brains just glitch and they just say something they don't know why they've said it and it's there like you know, there was an MP called Angela Smith who sort of implied I had a funny tinge like you know oh my god uh, I remember that a funny tinge and it was just for me such a perfect example of white people brain glitch it's like you did not wake up and start your day thinking that that was going to come out of your mouth that's probably never an arrangement of words which has ever come out of your mouth before but it did because your lack of racial literacy came up against contact with an actual brown person and just what something happened yeah and with that regard I I think I remember in that instance that her explanation because obviously we need to give Mm. an explanation after we say these fucking ridiculous things I think what she had said that the brain fart had come from or whether she directly Mm. said this or whether this was implied or critiqued on was that it was like in a moment of her own white fragility of trying to say not to say the wrong thing yeah then ended up saying something so bizarre equally wrong because it's it's like you're trying to say the right thing (laughs) rather than just kind of like acknowledge that the viewpoint you're about to express is the thing that you should question not the wording of it it's that question of why white people are so scared to say black or brown when they describe the color of somebody's skin I mean, it's, I think it's because white people don't know how to be anti-racist. It's an elaborate yeah. code around politeness, what you do say or don't say, rather than how is society organised and what's your role in changing it? Because that's obviously a really difficult mm. proposition. And people of colour, we keep giving you conflicting instructions all the time. Like, that doesn't help. We're like, mm. stay in your lane, but also speak up. Learn from people of colour, but also it's not my job to educate you. That's kind of like relevant to what you were saying earlier about 
about you know how various groups can come together to kind of like look at what is it that we're actually fighting for what is it that we're actually Mm. looking to change because of course there's going to be conflicting information because we're having a broader conversation and that's kind of like we got to figure out how to hear that you know but it's just like the microaggressions thing do you know what I mean like obviously microaggressions are important and they're sometimes a very immediate way a person of color can say me and you exist in the same spaces but we're not being treated in the same way whether that's because I'm a black woman and suddenly everyone wants to touch my hair or I'm a Muslim and it takes me three times as long to get through an airport as you do or you know or Mm. I get ignored at the shop or you know someone says this like it's a way of making legible in an immediate sense how our social worlds are different but ultimately if all there was to it was microaggressions I wouldn't give a shit I'd be like funny tinge away like I don't care and I think that that language which was useful to explain a certain thing has then Mm. been sort of expanded to sort of say to people white people your role is to make sure you never do a microaggression I'd rather like white people found a way to like you know unionize their workplace or something <laughs> yeah. you get you get one yeah. microaggression if you do one unionizing it's like, like this- planting a tree yeah this is like you know you're kind of racial offsetting you yeah. know yeah yeah and I think the use of humor in the response to all of this I think there was um I forget her name, but there's another woman that you get mixed up with. There's, oh, this happened a couple of times. Yeah. And so that happens a lot. And your responses to each other about using that humor to kind of go, this is fucking disgusting. Like on paper, this is ridiculous. This is what's happening. And we can laugh about it because it's the response that we have over something like this that is so blindingly obvious that this person is fucked up by mistaking the two of us. The reason why I also laugh about it is because like it's obviously racist. It's also just not the racism which impacts my life that much. Yeah. That kind of cross-race effect, which is where people don't recognise and distinguish between faces of a different race than them, has actually much more of an impact like in a criminal justice setting, you know, like where black men are being told you fit a description, so I'm going to stop and search you or I'm going to arrest you or where eyewitness testimony results in like a wrongful conviction. So obviously like there's an element of like real seriousness to this phenomenon, but in a setting of like Kirsty Walk mixing us up, for me, that's just like, here are these people who set themselves up as like the authority of like truthful information and particularly like when it comes to the left sort of pride themselves on being savvier and more sophisticated and da 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 and then again when a real existing lack of racial literacy which they don't acknowledge they don't acknowledge that they don't have that racial literacy comes up against the existence of melanin it's like but that to me is important to like be able to say hang on within a context of all the kinds of racism that affect me in Pfizer this is like really really low down but yeah that same phenomenon in a different setting particularly as it impacts black people as it impacts Muslim people in criminal justice and sort of you know counter-terror settings like that's a really serious thing it's that balance of how much you let into your space what you say just reminds me of the conversation I had recently about the Jewish space laser and how much for me and my family I couldn't let that go any further than what that was all the the humor that surrounded that because for most of us we were just like yeah we did that that was something collectively it's a bunch of Jews we decided to send that we could draw that laser we out there built a space laser 
I mean, I was like, I was remember chatting to one of my friends, and she, who's Jewish, and she was like, you know, but what if there is a big Jewish conspiracy? And I just wasn't invited. Can you imagine? <laughs> we talk about I'm not part of that group. It's the same group when people say I've got a Jewish friend. Do you know who they are? <laughs> did not did not meet them at the Jewish meetings. But there's a, a WhatsApp group of Jewish people in theatre, and I was like, I'm not in that. I'm not included in the Jewish theatre WhatsApp group. How Jewish or theatre do I have to be? And I like the fact that these this Jewish conspiracy theory it's I'm with your friend on that I've yeah they're selective that. you know it's not that there's not a conspiracy it's just I've got higher standards than including you I did any questions once with Boris Johnson's dad Stanley Johnson he just kept talking about like so he was like you know so, so where where are your parents from it's your heritage you know and I was just like oh, okay I'm Bengali and then he kind of just kept looping Bengalis into the conversation but like one of the kind of darkly funny ones was a plane crash had happened and he was like turned to me and he was like there were some Bangladeshi nationals on that did you know any and I was like no it's a really big country man it's like much bigger than the UK it's like really big and at the same time I was like there's this tragic fucking plane crash hold on I'll just check the Bengali whatsapp group to I was see. just like, like is anyone missing <laughs> you're all right. Abdul, you've not posted for a while. Are you okay? <laughs> I find it difficult to get angry mm. about that because I'm genuinely not. I'm just like, what wrong you've done to the country by sending all your children to private school and raising them to believe that they're entitled to rule the world and everyone within it is so much worse than like how you've expressed your lack of racial literacy in a green room with me. Is that where your anger sit with your private school frustration yeah one of my favorite questions to ask people is what role do you think going to private school had in your present success yeah no one likes that question (laughs) they go oh the quality of the teaching and I'm like is that all are we sure it was just class sizes (laughs) you know so like one there's that and there's just the very like naked impact that that has on our society and the concentration of power which I can't stand and then the other is that it's not just a right-wing thing. You see it on the left as well, where you've got people who went to private school who have this incredible confidence about everything they say. And it's not that they don't have self-doubt. Like private school, in some cases, boarding school, has instilled an absolutely poisonous and corrosive self-doubt and level of anxiety. But there's also this conditioning to just project utter certainty to everyone else. Like to the point where like very well-meaning, privately educated like white leftist was like trying to explain the Bengali diaspora in the UK to me. And I was like, yeah, I've heard of it. And it's very hard to break down because what you're having to say is like, you both feel too much and not enough insecurity. Yeah, Let's redeploy that. Maybe it's not about being better than the head girl or the prefect or whatever. Like maybe that's not the thing to be insecure about because, you know, that horse girl is also an idiot, but maybe there can be a healthy level of doubt and self-skepticism which can make you more empathetic and open and listening that's the kindest way I can put my private school anchor it's interesting what you say that the overconfidence is put over the crippling self-doubt I don't think I've seen the crippling self-doubt before because I always see the the overconfidence where it's like this thing of like you're built to rule you're you're trained to rule 
like rich people aren't nice to each other it's insane like there's class solidarity right that happens when there's an interloper or some kind of threat on their horizon like you know an increase in corporation tax or whatever but there's like no niceness like I went out with this really posh person once fucking regretted it and I'd hang out with him and his friends like at a dinner party and everyone was just like really awful to one another and I was just like rah like you talk to each other like that like I don't think any of you are that happy being here and these aren't like zingers like you're just being a cunt I can totally see the low self-esteem if you're consistently being told that you've got it good and that you're a high achiever and that you think you own everything underneath that it's this battle it's why there's the shittiness and being horrible to each other because it's a constant status ego battle of saying that you're good you're solid you've got everything together you've got your shit together and you're completely in control of your own destiny when you could have that taken away from you if you lose everything financially or your status and what else do you have to sort of really secure your feet on the ground and there's also like boarding school like I'm so anti-boarding school I just think it's like the worst thing when children are taken into the care system we recognize that as deeply traumatizing but when parents pay thousands and thousands of pounds every year to send their children to abuse factories we go oh look you just want the best for little Tarquin no like (laughs) it's a really bad thing to do I don't know anyone who's come out of boarding school not damaged by it and like there were people who've been very open about what that damage is like friends of mine from uni who are like this actually fucked me up it fucked my family up like I bear the scars of that to this day and then there are people who just don't have the insight into how fucked up they've been by it they're just like well turns out I'm completely toxic in relationships there's no reason for that can't be the fact that I was you know sent off to this like horrendous boarding school at the age of 11 years old and what I find really (laughs) funny about this is that the same fucking lot like you know who then go through the ranks of the Tory party they're going on about parental responsibility and take care of your families I'm like you got shipped off at age 11 let's talk about parental responsibility here because your parents couldn't wait to get rid of you and it shows what do you need some Valium money (laughs) I'll give you that Well, thank you, Ash Sarka. That was flipping brilliant. Yes, thank you so much to Ash. You can follow Ash on all of the socials. We will put them in the description. But I'd like to draw your attention particularly to her Twitter bio, which is a ra- Oh no, I was going to say arachnophobulous. <laughs> That's you. That's me! I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. Arachnofabulous. Um, <laughs> um, anarcho-fabulous, luxury communist, walks like a supermodel, fucks like a champion. Thank you all so much for listening and we will speak to you again soon. Bye. Bye. You can tweet the show using the hashtag LividPodcast or follow us on Instagram at LividPodcast and share what makes you furious. Livid is brought to you by Playwell with music by Ishani Perimpanayagam. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. <laughs>